Has there ever been a time in your life where someone said something cruel or hurtful to you, even maybe had someone lie to or about you? Ever had someone cheat you or misrepresent you or harm your reputation, maybe betray you or betray the trust in your relationship? The fact of it is that all of us could start blowing up the comment section with stories about how someone did something that hurt us deeply and it shaped us. It shaped us to some degree. And though we may not realize it, our response to what they did to us also shaped us as well. And though most of us would never admit it, we're holding a grudge. We go, you go, I'm not holding a grudge. I'm just fantasizing about what it would be like if I could just tell them off, right? If I could just give them a piece of my mind. And maybe the fantasy looks a little something like this, that one day you're walking down the aisle in Dylan's, just minding your own business, just thankful we've got toilet paper on the shelves again. And you look up and the person who wronged you is coming your way. And they're too close, so you can't pretend not to see them. So when you get close to them, you stop and they stop and you just look at each other and And suddenly you possess great oratory skills and you just lay into them with this amazing speech of how irrefutably this person so wronged you. And lo and behold, friends of yours happen to be in Dylan's on the same day at the same time. Imagine that. And they begin to gather around and they're listening and you're just building this crescendo and climax and you just wrap it all up with one final summarizing zinger that just crushes them to the core of their being. And the person who wronged you, their eyes begin to tear up, their lips starts to quiver, and you're just standing there vindicated. Finally, after publicly exposing the truth about what a horrible human being they are, and you're standing there as if waiting to finally hear those words you've always wanted to hear them say, which is, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. But just before they can say it, You turn on your heels and you walk away and everybody just applauds. I mean, doesn't that feel good? I know it feels good because some of you were smiling as I went through that, right? You're holding a grudge. And while holding a grudge feels good, here's my question. Does holding a grudge actually work? I mean, it might feel good for a while, but does it really work? And the reason why I'm skeptical that it does is that some of you, you've been holding on to a grudge for a long time and I'm not being critical. I'm just saying the fact that you've been holding a grudge for a long time means it's probably not working. In fact, some of us, if we're honest, sometimes we're our own worst enemy because we treat others and we make present-day decisions based on something that happened to us years ago. And the sinister thing about a grudge is that the longer you hold a grudge, the longer the grudge has a hold on you. And the deeper you bury a grudge, the deeper the grudge is lodged within you. And some of you listening to me today, you may not realize it because it's just gotten so buried under so many layers, but you've been carrying a grudge for a long time now. And, and I'm not saying that what they did to you wasn't a ba- that big of a deal. In fact, what I'm saying is what they did to you absolutely was a big deal. And the reason why I know it was a big deal is because that you still think about it. And it's still affecting your life and, and, and how you relate to others, even in ways that you may not even realize. So this is a big deal, absolutely. But here's the problem. If you keep carrying this grudge, the weight of the grudge, it's only going to get heavier and heavier and more deeply embedded into your heart. And eventually, you can't help it. The poison of that grudge, you just won't be able to stop it. In, inevitably, that grudge is going to seep into every other relationship around you and poison it.
but you won't know that it's happened until it's too late. And if you carry it long enough, you're going to uh, emotionally collapse under the weight of that grudge. So here's my hope and my prayer for you today, that you would stay focused and engaged on my words. Don't multitask. Uh, for the next few minutes, you'll no, don't check messages and emails or shop on Amazon. Rather, that you'll listen to what I have to say and that you just simply allow the Spirit of the living God to speak to you today so that he might finally free you from the grip of that grudge, so that he would break the chains of the past and that you'll be set free and able to finally move forward. That as one of the New Testament writers put it, that you'd finally be able to throw off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles, and run with perseverance the race that's marked out for you. Now, for some of you, you may be thinking, okay, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm not currently harboring any grudges, and for a small number of you, this might actually be true. But eventually, eventually, someone is going to hurt you deeply, and you're going to need this. For others of you, uh, some of you are chain-linked to the past and it's hindering you, and it's holding you back in ways, again, that you may not even realize. And today, if you will allow it, God will, will begin to release the grip of the grudge and break the chains of the past so that you can pursue the plans, the great plans that He has for you in the present and in the future. Now, again, I am not trying to downplay any wrong that was done to you. And I also want to acknowledge that for some of us, the wound is still too fresh, isn't it? It's just too recent. And the last thing that you want to hear is some guy like me talking about releasing the grip of the grudge. I, I totally understand. But all I ask is that you pay attention because as time progresses, I predict that you'll slowly begin to realize that the person the grudge is hurting most isn't the person you're holding the grudge against. It's the person holding the grudge that's being hurt the most. And when that day arrives, I just simply want you to remember this talk, that there's hope, that there's a God in heaven who stands ready to help you release the grip of the grudge and to break the chains of the past and to be free from what they did to you, no matter how bad or, or horrible or evil it was. So today we're going to begin uh, talk, uh, the, this talk with a symbol. Now, there are some top globally recognized symbols on the most list, here are three that always make the list. I'll predict, I predict that you could name them off just by seeing them. So we got this one. Okay, Amazon. It kind of helps that the name's in the icon. What about, about this one? Apple. Yeah, people all over the world recognize this. This one? Yeah, just do it. You know, Nike. Again, these are some of the top recognized brands all over the world. Uh, today, we are going to start with the most globally recognized symbol in history. And then we're going to move to a passage of scripture that really introduces what we're calling our life apps through this series, our life app for today. And it is the life app of forgiveness. Because as we're going to discover, true forgiveness works better than grudge holding. It just does. That's what we're going to discover today. So we're going to start off with the symbol, the icon, and then we're going to move into the New Testament and discover how do we actually apply this? How can we actually be set free from the grip of the grudge? And then we're going to close with a powerful story because what I know is some of you, while I'm talking, you're going to be thinking, okay, Chad, this is a nice thought, but if you knew my story, if you knew what was actually done to me, listen, I understand more than you know. Okay, I am with you. So just hang with me and give me the chance to show you that there's hope and that what I'm going to talk about actually works. So let's start here. We're going to start with the most globally recognized symbol, the cross. 
Now, while the cross is the most uh, world's most recognizable symbol, what's interesting is how the cross has been portrayed throughout history actually differs from how Rome crucified people, particularly the Eastern Legion of Rome. For example, we know that the Eastern Legion of Rome didn't crucify people on a cross that looked something like this, like the cross that most of us are used to seeing. Uh, they actually crucified people on a cross that looked more like this, okay, like an uppercase T, not a lowercase T. And this, in all likelihood, is what the cross of Jesus Christ actually looked like. Uh, the other interesting thing is that many times in art and in movies, Jesus is portrayed as carrying the full cross to Calvary. This is also inconsistent with what we know about history. How Rome crucified people is that this bar right here, this vertical bar, actually stayed in the ground the whole time. And it is this bar, this is what Jesus in all likelihood carried to Calvary. So there's some differences. But possibly the most significant dif difference is that in art and in movies, uh, Jesus is typically pictured as being crucified 15 to 20 feet up in the air so that it's like people had to look way up at him. And again, this is inconsistent with how the Eastern uh, Legion of Rome crucified people. They crucified people on a cross that was about five to six feet off of the ground. Uh, so that they ultimately wanted to make crucifixion very, very personal. They wanted to send a potent message. Come near, get close. We want you to get face to face and eye to eye with the person that's nailed to the cross. We want you to see it intimately. We want you to hear it. We want you to smell it. Because what they knew is once you experienced someone dying on the cross, you would never, ever forget it. It was that horrific. And the psychological message being sent whenever they crucified people and when they crucified Jesus was, if you do not bow the knee and submit to Rome, this too shall be you. And it was a powerful, memorable, imprinted message to anyone who saw crucifixion. But on the day Jesus was crucified, Rome wasn't the only kingdom sending a message. There was a far greater kingdom with a far greater message with a far greater significance. That kingdom was the kingdom of God. And the message of the kingdom God was similar. Come near. Get close. Get face to face and eye to eye with the Savior of the world. Come close and see the Savior of the world who has been beaten and battered and spit on and is now crucified. Because what the scriptures teach is that all of us have sinned, which literally means to miss the mark. We've all missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. Mankind's and womankind's relationship with God was, has been broken. And to restore it, a price has to be paid. And while we were yet sinners, this Jesus bloodied and nailed to a cross, this Christ died for us to pay the price so that we could experience God's forgiveness. One of Jesus's closest friends and followers, John, he would later write, see, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And imagine for just a second, imagine what it would have been like on that Good Friday to be able to walk up and be face to face, eye to eye with the Savior of the world, nailed to the cross, and, and you knew you were why he was there. And you knew that he knew it, and he knew that you knew it. But in that moment, all you saw in his eyes were compassion. Do you think you would ever walk away and forget that? 
The reason it's important to remember and imagine that is because in a very real sense, you were there that day. We all were. The cross isn't reserved for 2,000 years ago. The cross is timeless. The cross isn't what so many have reduced it to. It's not simply jewelry or art or a tattoo or even a religious symbol. The cross is personal. And what the cross means is that God's grace has come to you that God's mercy is available to you and God's forgiveness is extended to you. And it doesn't matter what you've done or even the ways that you will fall short in the future. That's the point, that knowing ahead of, times of, uh, ahead of time all the ways that you would fall short and miss the mark in advance, Jesus died for you. Nothing trumps the death of Jesus on the cross. Nothing There's no wrong that you have done or will do that trumps the death of Jesus on the cross. And what that means is once you embrace the story of the cross of Jesus, once you embrace and understand who Jesus is, God looks at you and says, you are forgiven, holy, righteous, as if you never did any wrong, my son, my daughter. And if that sounds like a free pass to do whatever you want, then you miss the point. When we truly embrace the cross and everything it communicates and and implies, a shift begins to take place in our hearts. God's grace and forgiveness, it's so overwhelming. God's grace and forgiveness uh, just doesn't come to us, but God's forgiveness and grace begins to flow out of us, that we're not just recipients of God's grace and forgiveness, but we become distributors of God's grace and forgiveness. And that leads to our bottom line of this life app of forgiveness. That forgiven people forgive. And this is so important. The reason we forgive is as much for us as it is the person we're forgiving. Because it is forgiveness alone that begins to release the grip of the grudge and all the ways that the grudge poisons us and poisons our relationships. Though absolutely counterintuitive, it is forgiveness that breaks the chains of the past and allows us to move forward. And your Heavenly Father deeply desires this for you. And it's not just that his grace and forgiveness comes to you. He wants it to flow out of you. The Apostle Paul, as most of you know, stepped onto the pages of history using violence to wipe out Jesus' followers, and then he ends up crossing paths with a risen Jesus. And then, not surprisingly, becomes the very thing he was trying to eradicate, a Jesus follower. This man knew intimately what it meant to need forgiveness as well as to forgive. And in a letter to Jesus' followers in Rome, Romans 12, please don't miss this. Paul says, this is how you apply the life app of forgiveness. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now, this is important. Note, notice, note the two uses of the word evil. Paul's not saying what they did to you wasn't a big deal, that you just need to put on your big boy or your big girl pants and just get over it. That is not what Jesus or Paul or the other New Testament writers say. No, they would say, hey, we agree with you. We are 100% with you. What they did to you was wrong. In fact, what they did to you, it was evil. And what Paul's saying here is that there's a natural human response when evil is done to us, and that's to retaliate, to respond in like kind, to get them back, and if you can't, to hold it against them forever. Paul's saying there's a different path from making matters even worse and to release the grip of the grudge. He says, do not repay evil, uh, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful instead to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, this is important. Now, this isn't an invitation to be a doormat. There are going to be some relationships, some toxic relationships and friendships and business relationships that you need to sever or exit. But Paul would say, do it in a way that is as peaceful as possible. He goes on, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question, and this is not a trick question, but based on this verse, whose job is it to avenge you? God's. Okay? Second question. When you avenge yourself, whose job are you assuming? God's. And come on, aren't we terrible at doing God's job? I I think sometimes the reason we don't forgive people is that we feel like somehow we're letting them off the hook and that they may somehow not have to answer for what they did to us. But that's not what we're taught in the New Testament. What Paul's saying is this, hey, you do your job and you let God do his. Let God avenge you and trust that at just the right time, he will somehow balance the scales. And if you can trust him in that, then you are free to move forward. He goes on in verse 20, and I love this. On the contrary, if your enemy enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, if you read this verse, it's like, excellent. I want to heap burning coals on their head. They're stinking, rotten head. So let's get this fire started. Hey, here's something nice. Boom. Take that, you loser. Okay, that is not what Paul is saying. Also, conversely, some would consider forgiveness to be weakness, and nothing could be further from the truth. Forgiveness is courageous. Forgiveness is defiant. It's not timid. It's not passive. It's also not like, I'm just going to let people run all over me. We're talking about breaking chains and moving forward. You do your part and let God avenge you. And then Paul sums it up this way. He says, do not be overcome by evil. And do do you know what this means? It means you get to choose. You have a choice in the matter. You didn't have a choice when they hurt you, but now you have power. You've been given the choice to be overcome by that evil, by holding a grudge or trying to lash out in revenge or avenge yourself. You could try that, or you could try to bottle it up and just have that poison, have that poison go deep and have it affect every relationship around you. Or you could decide, I'm not going to become overcome by evil, but I'm going to overcome evil with good. And the key word in all of this is exactly your end goal. And it's this word, overcome, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, the point of this whole conversation is, how do I overcome the evil that was done to me? And when you hold a grudge or you choose to be your own avenger, you don't overcome. You get more tangled up, don't you? But as you begin to apply this life app of forgiveness, you know what happens? The grudge, the change, that bond begins to break. And you know who's set free? You are. And this is the story of the cross, the overcoming of ultimate evil by ultimate good. And in these words of Paul that we just looked at, we discover how to do it, how to apply the life app of forgiveness. Paul would say the first is embrace God's forgiveness of you. This is the crucial starting point. And again, for some of you, I know the wound is still too fresh. So in the moment, just stay here. 
Just take some time to let this settle deep in you. That God looks at you and says, listen, with all the countless ways you, you have missed the mark in your life, in your relationship with me, in all the ways that you've broken my trust and broken my heart in spite of all of that, you are forgiveness, uh, forgiven and blameless in my sight. And for, for some of us, the person you need to forgive is you. Sometimes that's the hardest one to forgive, right? Uh, but listen, a perfect, holy, righteous God forgives you. And as the Apostle Paul John writes, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. If you have put your faith in Jesus as God's resurrected Son who died for your sins, you are forgiven. So the first step is just to pause and fix your eyes and embrace the overwhelming truth of God's forgiveness of you. And as that overflows out of our hearts, the next step is that forgiven people forgive, which leads to the third step, which is let God avenge you. And then leads to the final step that on purpose, in action, that you will overcome evil with good. That being inspired and empowered by the spirit of the living God and his grace and his love for you, you're going to overcome the evil that was done to you with good. Because that's what God through Christ did for us. And because forgiveness works, grudge holding does not now, again, I know the pushback. You go, Chad, if you knew my story, as I said at the very beginning, I have a story. And it might not be as hard as yours, but it's a pretty compelling story. And the story that I want to close today with uh, is told in the book Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand. It spent 12 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list six years ago. It was made into a movie that my wife and I, like many of you, have seen. It's the true story of a man named Louis Zapparini, who was a great American runner in the 1936 Olympics, and he did so well that he was a favorite to win the gold in the 1940 Olympics. But as many of you know, that was interrupted. The 1940 Olympics were canceled due to World War II. And since he couldn't represent his country in the games, he decided to serve his country by joining the U.S. Army Air Corps, serving the war. And one day he was flying a mission over the Pacific Ocean when his plane crashed into the ocean. It killed everyone on board with the exception of Louis and two other men. They climbed aboard two rafts and they began an incredible odyssey for 47 days. They just drifted 2,000 miles in the Pacific. Eventually, sharks began to rub their backs on the rafts. Eventually, they started trying to lunge after them, so they had to beat these sharks away with the oars that they had on the rafts. One night, about midway through this horrible experience, in the dark of night in the Pacific Ocean, Louis looks up to the starry sky and he said this, God, if you're really there, if you get me out of this, I'll give you my life. On day 47, they're captured by the Japanese Navy, not what he was expecting. And what Louis Zapparini is about to go through over the next two years would make the last 47 days look like a walk in the park. He was consistently and severely beaten and tortured. The internment conditions he were in were deplorable. And the story of what he went through and how he survived is incredibly hard to process. But of all the men that beat him, there was one man that stood out. His name was Matsuhiro Watanabe. Matsuhiro would later become one of the top 40 war criminals that both the U.S. and the Japanese government would pursue after World War II. The day Louis came to this prison camp, Watanabe looked at him and said, I, I know this guy. How, how do I know this prisoner? Then suddenly he realized, this is Louis Zapparini, the great American runner. 
And then all the vengeance and all the hatred and all the brutality that had normally been scattered among the troops was locked and loaded on Louis Zapparini. One day, uh, he command, uh, one day uh, Watanabe commanded another prisoner to stand up and punch Louis Zapparini in the face over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, one day, Matsuhiro came up to him and said, Zapparini, stand up. And he stood up, and Matsuhiro had a belt behind him, and he just whipped it uh, into his head. Immediately, as Louis fell to the ground, cracked his skull, Matsuhiro made him get back up, kind of clean him off a bit, step back, and then just hit him with the belt again. This happened day after day, week after week, for two years. Finally, Louis said, I can't handle this anymore. So he began to uh, create a plot to kill Matsuhiro Watanabe. But then one day, when he was outside, he noticed an American plane going across the sky, and he thought that might be a sign that the war might be coming to an end. And sure enough, the war did end. And before long, Louis Zapparini, he's rescued, he's released, he goes back to his home in Torrance, California. He meets a beautiful young lady, and they get married. But while he may have been removed from the war, the war was still raging inside of him. What was done to him caused a hot anger, anger few of us can probably even begin to understand. It caused him to turn to alcohol, and as he became an alcoholic, it devastated his marriage. His life started a downward spiral. And then one night in 1949, his wife came to him and said, Louis, there's a young preacher in Los Angeles that everyone's talking about. His name's Billy Graham. Would you be willing to go with me to hear this young preacher? And Louis said, I don't believe in God. I don't want to go, but wives can be persistent. So sure enough, he went that night. He did not enjoy it, but his wife said, please come back. Please come back. So he said, okay, we'll go back. But when the preacher says, let us pray, that means we're leaving. She said, okay. So they go hear Billy Graham the second night. And when Billy Graham says, let us pray, sure enough, the Zapparinis start heading towards the door. But as they're heading out the door, Louis remembers that one hopeless night floating in the dark in the Pacific Ocean saying, God, if you get me out of this, I'll give you my life. And as that memory of that moment flooded back into his mind, he moved from the exit door and down the aisle and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And do you know where Louis Zapparini basically went in essence? He came here to the cross. For the first time in his life, he embraced God's love and forgiveness. And it was power, a powerfully compelling moment for him. And as he stayed here and he embraced God's love and forgiveness and God's grace and forgiveness, it began to flow out of his heart. And, it, and, and he began to realize this truth that forgiven people forgive. And, and I can let God avenge me. And he began to practice this application of overcoming evil with good. And in fact, in 1952, he went back to Japan to Sugamo Prison, where many of the guards who had beat him were now war criminals and imprisoned themselves. And it was in that prison that Louis Zapparini looked into the eyes of the men who had beaten and tortured him day after day for two years. And he told them, I've come to tell you, Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins. And because he has forgiven me of all my sin, I want you to know I forgive you for what you did to me. He went one by one to look them in the eye and tell them that individually. It is a powerful moment. But one man was not there, and that was Matsuhiro Watanabe. 
because he was on the run and had vanished. Many thought that he had killed himself or had died, but then in 1997, a producer for 60 Minutes located Watanabe and asked, hey, could we come and interview you? And he said yes. So then the producer contacted Louis Zapparini and said, hey, we've located him. Would you like to write a letter to him that we could deliver? And Mr. Zapparini said, sure. And here's the letter that Louis Zapparini wrote. To Mr. Matsuhiro Watanabe, as a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and the suffering as it was to the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights not only as a prisoner but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle just to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced a hate I had for you. Christ said to forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Sugamo Prison. I asked them about you and was told that you probably had committed harikari, which I was sad to hear. And at that moment, like the others, I also forgave you. And now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Signed, Louis Zapparini. And there it is. After all that he went through to be able to write this simple letter, there's the power of the cross. Please don't miss this. This is the application of forgiveness. As Paul would tell us to embrace God's forgiveness of you, forgiven people forgive, let God avenge you and overcome evil with good. It actually works. And it's available to you because God loves you. He sent his son for you and he wants to break the grip of the grudge and to break the chains of the past so that you can move, move forward. So here's my question for you today. Who is it? Who is it that comes to mind? Whose face comes to mind for you? Who is it that what they did to you was so wrong? Maybe it was even simply evil and you've just been carrying it with you. But it's time. It's time to apply forgiveness so that at last, finally, you can be healed of the poison and freed from that weight. It's time. Maybe it's as simple as a prayer and an, and an act of the heart and you'll feel it, but odds are it's going to involve a conversation, maybe more than one. If they're living a conversation with a person that hurts you, and, and, and maybe they have no idea how deeply they hurt you, but you've just been treating them with an edge for so long, or maybe you've just cut them off or pushed them away entirely, or maybe it's the other people in your life, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a spouse or a child, that there was something done to you by someone else in your past. And you know deep down that the poison has seeped into all these other relationships. And you just know the crap that you've been dumping on these other people in your life. And the irony is that in being hurt, You've hurt others and becoming li become like the one that you're holding the grudge against. And the people around you, they don't understand. And now they carry the fact that you've hurt them and they don't know why, but they have the same decision to make that you do. Well, they carry a grudge. It's time to have some conversations. It may be time to finally have the courage to see a counselor, but it's time to do whatever it takes to get to a place where you can forgive and release and break free to experience the joy that comes from applying forgiveness. Let me pray for you. 
God, I pray for everyone listening to my voice because I don't say any of this lightly or even say that it's easy, even though it's simple. God, I pray for everyone that is carrying pain and and still bleeding or scabbed over wounds from the past. And I pray, God, that you would partner with them with what Jesus referred to as our helper, your Holy Spirit, to give them the strength that is needed to finally release and to forgive. I pray that you would give them the courage that even by the end of the day or by the end of this week, to go and have some necessary conversations with those that maybe hurt them and also with maybe those around them that they've hurt. And I pray, God, that those around them, that that you'll give them a willing spirit to hear and that you would give them the ability to forgive. God, I I pray for all of us because we're living in a season where tensions are high, anxiety is high, we are mentally exhausted and tired. And Father, we're just more prone to hurt when we're in that state of mind. And so Father, I pray that you would help us to get that, uh, get a grip on that and that anyone we've hurt, Father, or anyone that's hurt us, that you would help us to dig into and get a hold of forgiveness. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We know that life is complicated and we're, we're just here to help because ultimately Christ came to help us and to help us to have life that's truly life. I am so excited that next week we are regathering and relaunching in-person services at the Wichita State Metroplex at 29th and Oliver. So if you're new, if you're just joining us for the first time, there's a link in the comments for the family page. Please click that link to join that kind of behind the scenes page so that you are fully informed as to what to expect and what's going on and and what you're going to be walking into. But we hope that you will join us for this very exciting time as we relaunch our in-person gatherings for New Life Wichita. All right, we hope to see you then.